0: Would you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, uh, 1 through 17, Exodus 20, and following the reading of Scripture, we will sing the Gloria Patri, which is printed for you in your, in your bulletins. So Exodus 20, 1 through 17, please stand for the reading of God's But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. Amen. The Heidelberg Catechism is directing our thoughts to think about <clears throat> how we may express our gratitude for the deliverance from our sin and misery. And it covers two broad areas in the questions to come. One is the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and the second is the, is prayer considering the lord's prayer and in the questions for this day lord's day 34 after giving the 10 commandments <clears throat> it gives a couple preliminary questions one is a couple preliminary questions and then gets into the the first commandment and that's what we'll do <clears throat> today but what i want you to think about first the first thing i want to direct your thoughts to is the preface to the Lord's uh, to the Ten Commandments, it's there in Exodus twenty, verses one and two. And God spoke all these words: "I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery." Uh, that those uh, those two verses, those phrases there, help underscore the reason behind our serious consideration of the Ten Commandments. And why it is that we're motivated to obey them, why we're under an obligation to obey them. And there are two truths brought out in that, in that verse, particularly verse 2. The first is the sovereignty of God. He is the Lord our God. And as the sovereign God, he has a right, he has our creator, he has the right to command us what he will. Uh, we might think the commands are unnecessary, or we might think, I wish he hadn't commanded that. But nevertheless, God has a right as our creator and as our Lord to command us what he will. And so he gives us these directions and these commands. But the second thing that's very important is the work of redemption, that he brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Not only does God have a right to direct our lives, but the basis on which the law is given and built is redemption. Uh, it's, so, it's such a critical thing for us to appreciate. The, the law begins on the foundation of grace. We can't f- forget that grace begins. <clears throat> it's not law and grace, and it's not law versus grace, It's grace and redemption and then out of gratitude, law. Uh, It's grace that puts us in a relationship with God. God redeems us. And then on the basis of that redemption, then you and I live out a life of love and faithfulness to the Lord and this law guides us in that. Legalism In any of its forms, is a denial of the priority and necessity of grace. It's in any way, if in any way it 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 implies that we can gain the favor of God by our obedience, it's wrong and it's denying the foundational element of grace. Grace begins the whole issue, and antinomianism is a distortion of grace. That we might be forgiven and then live however we please is a distortion of grace to get rid of the law and its obligations on us. So we always have to keep it in our minds, this foundation of grace, out of which grows our desire to please and honor our God. And he gives us directions how to do that. Question 93, the second thing we'll think about is, how are the commandments divided? And it divides them up into two tables of the law. The first four commandments, our duty to God. The last six, our duty to our neighbor. Turn to Matthew 22, verse 36. Matthew chapter 22, verse 36. Jesus answers the question, What's the greatest commandment? And his answer parallels uh, this aspect of the two tables of the law. So, Matthew 22, verse 36 Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? <clears throat> and Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so we have the the summary of the 10 commandments in Jesus answer of the two great commandments, and that illustrates for us the two tables of the law, our duty to God and our duty to our fellow men. So we come to the first commandment. What is the first commandment? It's you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, OPC pastor Calvin Cummings, who's with the Lord now, wrote a book called Confessing Christ. And this was the the label he gave to this first commandment is the law of loyalty. And it's a a great summary of, description of what this law is all about. It has everything to do with our loyalty and our commitment to the Lord alone. And uh, as the catechism goes on to describe it, it brings up the problem of idolatry, which is, was definitely prevalent in that time. We might consider, well, do we really need a, a law about idolatry or battling idolatry? Most of you, most of the people you know, they probably don't have a <clears throat> statuette in at home that they worship. If we were in another culture in another country, that might not be that might be the case. Uh, there was a uh, hotel that we would go when we were visiting our daughter Grace in Denton <clears throat> that we would frequent, and in the lobby there at the check-in desk, they he did have a little idol there. Uh, A a, a sort of a a box a decorative box where his God dwelt in but do we need really a a commandment about idol worship well John Calvin would remind us that man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols what is an idol it could be an actual statuette but an idol is anything we crave or obsess about an idol is something that we sacrifice time and money for. An idol is something that we put our hope in, our trust in. An idol is something we love. And we find in the Bible there are a lot of different things that become idols in people's lives. Turn, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 9, Jeremiah 9, verse 23. <clears throat> Jeremiah 9.23, he gives three things people make as idols. This is what the Lord says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Men take pride and trust in their wisdom uh, or their strength or in their riches. And they become idols in a person's life. And God says we ought not to do that. We need to make it our priority to know the Lord you're still in Jeremiah, turn to Jeremiah 17, verse 5. Jeremiah 17, verse 5. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength, and his heart turns away from the Lord. Now, it's not as though we don't trust one another or have things in which we depend on each other for. It's not to take away that, those normal relationships we have that are important for us. But what he's saying is our hope isn't in a person. There are those that you've heard of, that I know of, that have abandoned church, to leave a church, won't ever return to a church because a pastor has disappointed them. Now, it's not that we don't want pastors who have integrity and are honorable in the way they live and act and so forth, or elders, but the pastor will disappoint you. Uh, you will be um, uh, disappointed in, in this pastor as well as any pastor, <clears throat> but that's not where you put your hope. You don't put your hope in the man you put, you put your hope in the lord and that and so when a man fails you you try to work through all that but, but that's expected but god will never fail he will never disappoint paul in rebuking the false teachers in second timothy says they are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of god we make the things of this world uh, something we're devoted in. Uh, Paul, in 1 Timothy, was dealing with riches and the problem of riches. And it's not a, not a problem to have wealth or riches, but he, he says, Command those who are rich in this present world <clears throat> not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. <clears throat> it's not as though we're not allowed to enjoy the rich benefits God gives us in this life. He gives us many wonderful things. We are to enjoy those and appreciate, appreciate them as gifts from his hand. But that's not where our hope is. If we're wealthy, we can thank God for that and enjoy the blessings of that. But if our wealth is gone, we still have everything in the Lord. And so if if the Lord is our focus and our attention, then we still have our hope. We still have that which we can build our life on. So as we look through the catechism answer, question 94, <clears throat> what does God require in the first commandment? begins with a very... Interesting and significant phrase, as sincerely as I desire the salvation of my own soul, how sincerely do you desire to be saved? What kind of passion passionate desire is it that you be delivered from your sin and misery? That same passion needs to motivate you to make the Lord alone your affection and your your, your desire. As passionate as you are to be delivered from sin and misery, that's the same passion you should have to having no other gods before the Lord. The answer, things to avoid, idolatry, sorcery, superstition, prayers to saints or any other creatures. In other words, no allegiance to a created thing should take precedence. But what are we to do? We're to learn rightly to know the only true God, We're to trust in him alone. With humility and patience, submit to him. Expect all good things from him only. Love, fear, and glorify him with my whole heart. The first commandment is calling on you to give to the Lord your whole heart. Your complete commitment. Your absolute loyalty, first and foremost. The first commandment draws our attention to the reality that the Christian faith is not an either-or affair. It's not that you can have Christian faith or something else. <clears throat> it's a, a the exclusive nature of the Christian faith that demands all your allegiance, all your affection, all your attention. There's no middle ground. Throughout scripture we're called on to that. Um, remember Joshua when he was reaffirming the covenant <clears throat> in his last speech, said, whether you want to get rid of the gods of Egypt or not, that, that's your decision. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Jesus made the, the statement, you cannot serve two masters. Either you're going to love one and hate the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. There's a, it's an all out commitment to the Lord no other gods, <clears throat> no other idols before him. And we see an interesting and important parallel to this in our marriage vows. What would a woman think if a man came to the, the, his marriage with the, to make the vows to, a, to his prospective wife and brought along his mistress and said, well, she's going to be part of the uh, relationship here. She would be outraged and she would say, No, the vow that you're going to make is forsaking all others. You're going to commit yourself to me. And you're familiar with that, those statements and the marriage vows that you have, you've heard, forsaking all others. And we would not think a wife or a husband were cruel. Or proud or unfair or intolerant in making such a demand. It's a reasonable demand. It's a holy demand. So why do we, why do people think that God is somehow unjust to demand your full allegiance? He wants you to vow to forsake all others. And bow before him alone. And Israel's problem, as it is a problem for men throughout history, is a blending, a syncretism, a blending of things. They want God, but they want something else. In Israel's case, it was they wanted God, they wanted Jehovah, Yahweh, but they also wanted Baal and Asherah and some of the other (coughs) gods of the Canaanites. And God said, no, I won't tolerate that. I want you to have no other God before me. And that doesn't mean God's in a list of gods and you have him above the other gods. And he's, he's saying, I don't want you to have another God before my face. In my presence. And God being everywhere present, that means there's nowhere you can go with your idol that you can escape the gaze of almighty God. And you are not to have that idol in his presence, in his face. You're to be 100% committed to the Lord. You shall have no other gods before me. Part of the problem of the weakness of the church, the weakness of Christianity, the weakness of our Christian lives is we're double-minded. Turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 5. It's a slightly different illustration, but it brings the same point. We can't serve two masters. We're going to love one and hate the other. In James 1, verse 5, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom... He should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. I'm going to pause there, but we're going to continue. Many Christians look at that and say, I ask God for wisdom, but I'm, I'm struggling with some different things. I'm unsure about some things. I have some doubts and I have some fears. Is God going to give me wisdom? He says here he's not going to give me wisdom. But no, that's not what he's saying. Verse 7 goes on to tell us, That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. What does it mean? What's what's James talking about? He's talking about the man, the double-minded man. Who he has one he wants to have one hand on God and the other hand in this world, and he can't make a decision he wants he wants God and all the good things that come from him, but he wants the world too, and he's a double minded man, and so when he asks God for wisdom, he's not really asking God for wisdom truly because he's wanting. Something in both worlds. He's double-minded. He's not committed. He's not sold out to the Lord. And God will not give that man anything. You and I, in our fears and our doubts, are crying out to God for wisdom. But we want him and him alone. He's going to give it. Doubt here is double-minded. And you and I are called on by this first commandment to not be double-minded people. To give God our whole heart, our loyalty to him first and foremost. And in that way, we can live a life of gratitude to him for deliverance from our sin and misery. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the abundant mercy and love you've given to us. Thank you for redeeming us, for saving us from sin, and putting us on the path of obedience. Live a righteous life for you. Thank you that you've given us this first commandment. May we give our hearts and souls to it, that we'll have no other gods before you and that you would be honored and glorified in us above all else. Fill us with that love, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.